This evening's talk is called Trust in Dharma, Trusting Yourself. I'm going to begin with a story. The other day, the whole teaching team was having lunch down by the yurt. And we were hearing about plans to establish a kind of burial ground out in the part of the land where um, that beautiful spot near where the iron sculpture is now standing. And the idea is that it would be a place where people's ashes could be scattered and it would be located down enough from where the silent retreats are held that people could come visit this place at any time without interrupting retreats. And we thought this was such a great idea. There was lots of enthusiasm for it. And then someone said, um, oh, just this is so wonderful. Who's going to go first? <laughs> uh, yeah, there was silence. And then there was laughter. No one wants to go first. We're not about to die anytime soon, that is, if we have any say in the matter. But we won't be here in the same way, holding and witnessing and guiding your practice. And so the question of how to continue on your own and how to trust the Dharma and to trust yourself looms large and is very important right now. So this talk is just to remind you of how to trust the Dharma and how to trust in experience and how to really be able to go for refuge in what you've learned and in and your own ability to put it into practice as you begin to prepare yourself for leaving this retreat. So we'll hear some stories of people trusting the path trusting themselves, of the Buddha's teaching, um, some teaching given to his heart disciple, Ananda, shortly before he died, and a teaching given by Ananda after the Buddha was gone. And these teachings are just for you to apply to your own lives, both within and outside of retreat. So not long after the Buddha passed away, Ananda was living in a part of the bamboo grove called the Squirrel's Sanctuary. The bamboo grove, which you can still visit in what is now Rajgir in Bihar, in northern India, this grove was given to the Buddha by a generous lay disciple who wanted to provide a protected place for practice Uh, for the whole community. Just as we too are given protection and this um, beautiful sanctuary, refuge, by the people who founded and supported this meditation center and by all of the skilled, the many people who take care of us here, dedicated and skilled managers, cooks, staff, And the Buddha's community extended the same protection, 
this safe haven to the squirrels, apparently, too. Just as we offer safety and sanctuary to the deer, the earwigs, the worms, the turkeys, the lizards, the frogs, and those little, I don't know what they're called, those little bush birds uh, here at Spirit Rock. In this sutta, Ananda explains that there's really no one who has ever been like the Buddha, that he was the arouser of the unarisen path, the knower of the path, the finder of the path, the one skilled in the path. And there was no one appointed to be his successor, either by the Buddha or by the community, because really no one, uh, no one person had all the qualities and qualifications of the Buddha. No one could possibly fill those shoes or those sandals. Or actually, I think he went barefoot. Um, So Ananda was asked, without your teacher, is your group left without a refuge then? And Ananda says, we are not without a refuge. We have a refuge. We have the Dharma as our refuge. As the Buddha said to his Sangha before he passed away, what I have taught and explained to you as Dharma and discipline, Sila, our Dharma protector, what I have taught and explained to you as Dharma and Sila will be at my passing your teacher. Now the squirrel sanctuary was a place where the squirrels especially liked to hang out in the bamboo grove because they knew they could be free from harm and free from fear there. A refuge is a place where we too go to be free from fear and suffering. We go for refuge to find a way to live that will free us of the suffering of a home or a place that we have to leave because it has become unworkable, unlivable. It may be a mind house, a home to our familiar habits, ruts, patterns. Or it may be a country, an addiction, a relationship from which we have to flee for our lives, becoming refugees. What's most essential is that we find the courage to leave the familiar suffering and set out into the unknown, to walk a path of awareness and presence, this path of dharma. You all know how to do this. You've walked this path with great sincerity during this retreat. Something good to remember is that it's not really the experiences that you've had here that are so important, although you will probably always remember them, never forget them. It's learning how to meet experience, how to be with it, 
And this way of being present with experience is completely available to you. It's always available. It will never abandon you. It's as immediately accessible as the breath, the body, a sound. Whatever brings you here now, you can always trust this, the Dharma. As Sylvia says about trusting the Dharma, it may feel awful, but it's lawful. Entrust yourself, then, to this simple process of being alive, letting go of all elaborations and returning to the body, the breath, step by step, moment by moment, just returning to this simple, basic, fundamental fact of our own aliveness, our embodied being. The Supreme Head Monk of Cambodia, Mahagosananda, his actual title is the Supreme Patriarch, but this word patriarch has some different connotations in our country. He's really the head monk of the country. He traveled with a group of us on a pilgrimage to Korea to visit the great Zen temples of Korea. Along with Korean monastic dignitaries and some Western teachers, he was invited to give a Dharma talk. It was attended by hundreds of monastics, all in their gray robes, and some of us lay people. He stood up and he said in French, the language of the country that had colonized his, Je suis... Tu es, il est, elle est, nous sommes, vous êtes, ils sont, elles sont. He conjugated quietly and slowly as he stood at the podium the verb to be. He said, I am. You are. It is. He is. She is. We are. They are. So simple. So utterly true. So completely clear. He gave his talk without notes. They all did. But it was Mahagosananda who radiated such metta and karuna, transmitting a strong and unmistakable wave of wisdom and compassion. We sat and wept. Tears of recognition of such unmistakable tenderness, infinite love and tenderness. And he hardly said anything up in front of that illustrious assembly. Shortly before he died, when Ananda asked him how they would maintain the harmony and integrity of the Sangha without his presence, the Buddha taught, and I'm quoting, 
the six qualities that, once practiced, create love and respect and lead to helpfulness, concord, non-dispute, and unity. These qualities are good to remember here and when we leave here. The first one is bodily acts of loving-kindness, both in public and in private, toward companions in the holy life. For us, our companions on the path, each other, and all those whose lives we touch. I live in an apartment where several households share a washer and a dryer. And sometimes I'll go and to, you know, pick up my laundry and someone else got there first and needed to use the washer and dryer. And so just occasionally, instead of finding my laundry all piled in a jumble on top of the dryer, it will be folded. It's a simple act of kindness that really makes a difference. Two, verbal acts of kindness. Well, these are hard to do when you're in silence. But as you begin to emerge from the silence, you can give voice to some positive thoughts, some appreciation for each other. And making amends to someone, too, can be a verbal act of metta. Maybe something you need to do when you go home. Three, mental acts of loving-kindness. Just remembering to offer metta karuna to yourselves and to others as you emerge from deep retreat. And also practicing mutita. The joy in the joy of others and the rejoicing for having this opportunity to be here to practice the Dharma. Four, using things in common with unreserved sharing of any kind of gain. For us, we could just say practicing generosity, dana. And five, I'm going to spend some time on this one. Possessing in common those virtues that are unbroken. Sila. Sila is our vinaya, our discipline, our precepts, the other teacher that the Buddha gave us, along with Dharma. And it's not about being moralists or moralistic. It's not applying rules to try, you know, sort of an adolescent understanding that are trying to control us against which we have to rebel. Sila is a natural expression of our awakened hearts. And so it too is our refuge. I want to go back to the story, but just from a slightly different angle. The story of how Sila protected the Buddha from his demons that night of his awakening. And I want to ask you to just imagine that it's you, this Buddha, taking your seat in the midst of experience and that you're determined to stay mindful, ardent, steady, and alert, not getting pushed into reactivity or acting out. 
So this Siddhartha, could be a male or a female, it's you, has entered his meditation. And now Mara, who is sometimes called the demon of obsession, is trying to disrupt your sitting, to lure you into confusion. He's sending his beautiful daughters, of course they could be, they could represent anything that tempts you, his beautiful daughters to promise you tender love, comfort, sexual delight. Siddhartha could be you, a woman, this time being seduced by handsome men promising you the relationship you've always dreamed of. Protected by determination and sila, Siddhartha's mind does not move. She sees the attractive men as simply pleasant experiences arising in the mind. Furious like every thwarted devil of fairy tales, myths, and legends, Mara now sends armies of demons to attack, to attack you. But again, protected by Sila from getting drawn into some violent or angry reaction, Siddhartha's mind does not move. The demons are seen simply as very unpleasant experience. And their weapons turn into a rain of fragrant blossoms. Finally, you see clearly that the eye that owns experience is delusion and suffering. Siddhartha is able to be the knower of all experience and not the owner of it, the awakened one, the Buddha. Now we have this legend as a kind of legacy of inspiration and we can learn to see things this way too with presence and steadiness, meeting experience with presence and steadiness of mind and heart. There was that final challenge though, remember? Mara appears as doubt. Hey, Mr. Big Stuff, who do you think you are? Hey, Ms. Enlightened, who do you think you are? So when this happens, and the fog of doubt rolls in, we can touch the earth. We have our mindfulness. We can touch the ground of experience. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. And just say, I see you, Mara. During one of my early retreats, I kept falling asleep on the cushion the whole time. But the end by you know at the end of the day when bedtime finally came, I was wide awake. And I couldn't <laughs> sleep at night. I would just lie there wide awake after just being unable to fight off what is it sloth and torpor during the day. And telling my teacher about it in an interview, he said very sympathetically, oh, he said, that's a demon. Now, we both knew he didn't mean it literally. 
But it helped me to externalize the problem, to not make it be I, me, about me or my mistake. Um, It wasn't my failure. It wasn't something wrong with me. It was a known demon, Amara, who tormented beginning meditators. No problem. It would pass. So when you leave retreat, and are inevitably confronted with challenges to your integrity and to your ethical living when you're swayed by temptation to act in ways that will be destructive, tempted to throw the precepts to the winds, you can say right here in the middle of the fire, oh, that's a demon. I see you, Mara. A contemporary story of bravery, of trusting Dharma and Sila, comes to us from Marianne Pearl, a journalist and practicing Buddhist who was traveling with her husband Daniel in Pakistan when he was captured by terrorists. She was four months pregnant at the time and began the arduous search for her husband with the Pakistani police officers. So this is, I'm quoting what she wrote. When we were searching for Danny, I would practice and know that he also was practicing. This was an act of resistance. It was obvious to me that the terrorists were trying to instill fear. I knew right away what to do, which was to practice so I wouldn't be paralyzed. Four days later, his captors began sending emails with images of him held hostage. And I think most of you know the end of the story. He was killed. When I learned, this is her again, when I learned that Danny was dead, I did not consider revenge for a second. Politicians are not going to win a war on terror with bombs. People are going to win the war with the way they react to terrorism and the way they live up to their values. She moved to New York, gave birth to their son, Adam, and published a book, remarkable for its lack of rancor, of her husband's ordeal and how she survived after his death. She said again, this is her voice again, by writing about my faith, courage, practice, and resistance, I'm fighting the war on terror. Terror is so powerful that you can lose all your capacity even to react. As a victim of terror, you have the opportunity to live up to your values. Buddhism was a very solid ground on which I was walking. My own practice, one that has guided me for over 18 years, gave me insight into our terrible situation, insight into the motives of the terrorists, and insight into the real and present risk of death. If nations respond to terrorism the way I have, we will win.
My friend Andy Olensky wrote an essay called No Essence, and he was looking at this huge question of good and evil in human nature. And he said, I suspect we will be better off attending to the nuances of a rising and falling experience below the level of mental constructs than rearranging conceptual theories about human nature as innately pure or innately defiled. Whether human nature is inherently good or intrinsically evil might even be irrelevant. The more important issue is what one is doing with the mind right now. After all, and he quotes the Buddha, whatever a person frequently thinks and ponders upon, (coughs) that will become the inclination of her mind. So number six on the Buddha's list. Possessing in common with one's companions the noble right view, samaditi. Here we've all had a chance to see how understanding the Four Noble Truths, how we suffer when we cling to things, and how we can stop. This is wise view, refuge in our open, clear awareness. Sometimes when we hear right view, the mind jumps in. Oh, what's that again? What's right view? What did the Buddha say about that? The Buddha is not advancing a point of view, the right one, but advocating the wise way to see life, which is non-clinging to any points of view. What are you doing? What are you doing with your mind right this minute? When you hear these beautiful teachings, as you listen to these Dharma talks of patience, balance, metta, and so forth, doesn't the thought arise, I want to be like this? It does for me. I just love the spiritual path, and I want to be a spiritual person. It's the best. (laughs) But the trouble is, then we create all these ideas about what a spiritual person is really like. And then we try to be like that. Without realizing it, you can begin to practice the goal or the result or the fruit of the practice instead of just following the instructions, practicing the method, the way. And this usually happens quite outside of our awareness. The way, as you know from your own experience, is simply bringing, simply, that's so deceptive, (laughs) simply bringing mindful attention to what's happening in your consciousness every single moment. (laughs) That's all. How you're keeping your mind, moment to moment, breathing this breath and this one. When you find yourself practicing the result or the goal, instead of the way, trying to fit or measure up to your idea of being a spiritual person, you'll be thinking things like, I shouldn't be filled with rage. I mustn't be so sad. I shouldn't complain. I shouldn't enact my humanness. Chances are you'll be in conflict. You'll be suffering. 
Once I was in retreat at Barry at IMS in the three-month retreat, and I had gone through a very difficult time, and my mind was really in a swirl, and I was doing a lot of noting practice, which was really helping to um, clarify and keep me oriented and steady. And but I came to this place where I just couldn't note what it was, and it just the mind just kept slipping off the object and wouldn't stay. And this was well into the retreat, so there was some concentration, but it just wouldn't stay. And I remember going to Joseph and asking him, what about this? And he knew something of the story that was happening at that time in my life. And he said to me, have you tried the note hate? (laughs) I just looked at him, moi? (laughs) No, No, I didn't try that note. (laughs) That wouldn't apply to me. Guess what? It worked. So when we're trying to be a spiritual person, you know, there's just things that we can leave out of the possible range of what we're really experiencing and what's really true for us. And that's the problem with having any identity around our practice. Like any image or identity that we try to maintain, it just we just lose our connection to what's true. Ideals are inspiring, but when we try to practice the ideal, we're doomed to fail, to always live in that gap where a cold wind blows between the ideal and the actual. I don't know if any of you remember this legend of Procrustes, an evildoer, who, actually I think he was a giant, and... Um, his, he lived at the, near the entrance to the city of Athens in ancient Greece. And his name means he who stretches. Now this Procrustes kept a house by the side of the road where he offered hospitality to passing travelers. They were invited in for a pleasant meal and a night's rest in his very special bed. If the guest asked, well, what's so special about your bed? Procrustes would say, why, it has the amazing property that it exactly matches the length of whoever lies on it. Now, what Procrustes didn't volunteer was the method by which this one-size-fits-all was achieved. Namely, as soon as the guest lay down Procrustes went to work on him. He stretched him on the rack if he was too short for the bed, and he chopped off his legs if he was too tall. Today, the metaphor of the Procrustean bed (laughs) is still used to illustrate what we do when we apply practices to ourselves instead of being within the experience when we stretch the truth of who we are or where we are, or maybe lop off, disavow, and deny other parts of our experience. Like when we try to control the breath, to try and 
conform, maybe fit into an external ideal or standard of how the breath should be. It should be long and deep and easy and so forth. How we could distort our spiritual practice into another way to oppress ourselves. But we do. It's suffering. It's just another reactive pattern. I remember coming home from a very powerful retreat once, and I was just filled with ideas of how loving and compassionate I was going to be with my family when I got home. I just had so many, you know, remorse for the ways I had been awful and um, just lots of ideas of all the kindnesses and I was just going to be sort of the goddess of love and compassion. (laughs) And I remember it was so horrible. Like, (laughs) not even two hours after getting home, I remember standing in front of the stove having this huge fight with my spouse I think I was even yelling. I, I don't want to think about it, but um, we have to look out for this because all the energy of the retreat, all this high energy can just like flow into and fuel our reactivity too with all this openness and sensitivity um, without a lot of mindfulness about ourselves. So not to be surprised by intensity if it arises. And then we can see about establishing daily life retreat, alternating periods of quiet with periods of interaction. And it can even be a very short period of silence. Just, I need a time out. Just 10 minutes, go sit down. Before resuming the conversation, I wish I had done that. And this is the place where the rubber meets the road, where our cushion meets our life. So we sit down and just draw the teachings back into the heart, taking a deep breath, releasing, returning to the body, our feet on the ground, just releasing the grip of conflict. And, and uh, we can just relax a little and ask ourselves, do I want to be right or do I want to be free? Can you make each thing you do the most important thing in the whole wide world just because you're doing it right here, right now? Can you return to the breath as to your beloved? Can you remember the moments of just being in love on this retreat with the deer, with the sky, with this place, with yourself? And how these moments came about. They came about through your great willingness to surrender to the simplicity of this practice, breath by breath, moment by moment, being with, staying near, as close as you can to what's here, not separating from the direct truth of experience. This is something you can do anytime you remember to be a little bit mindful about yourself. And it doesn't depend on anyone else. 
When you know that you can bring that warmth of metta into your own being, into absorption, into your own breath and body, into just this, this tiny house of time and place here, it's okay to emphasize the joy, the delight, as Heather was saying last night. This can be so important and it can deepen and clarify more and more till the heart just melts and some love and tenderness pour in. Living simply in pure experience, living calmly, peacefully enjoying these times when they happen. This is the way for us to go toward that burial ground in the meadow filled with contentment, not with worry, jealousy, anger, anxiety. But even when we're filled with that stuff, to know without a shadow of a doubt that no matter how hellish the state we're in, our true refuge is in awareness of it. A few more um, encouragements. The first one is to use your karma. Use your karma. Don't be used by it. What does this mean? This really means trusting yourself, trusting who you are, the kind of person you are. Um, And trust is the basis for this whole path, that it's trusting that it's okay to let go of our conceptual world. That we can let go of trying to get a grip on everything and get a handle on things and make them better than they are and just trust that we can connect with experience. Opening, trusting, relaxing. Achan Sumedho's mantra, open, trust, relax. With ease instead of wishing and hoping for something better than this moment. Remember Suikan, I told you about that Zen master who um, would always call to himself and wake himself up? We can wake ourselves up this way. Remember he would say, Trudy, yes, yes. Are you here? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. Do not be deceived by others. In awakened awareness, there's no grasping for something other, something else, something better. Okay, okay. Trust where you are, because there's really nowhere else to be, actually. This is it. There is no other life. And no one can do it for us. We have to wake ourselves up. So to use your karma, this just really means be the knower of your tendencies, of your personality, of the way you are. You can't really trust your personality, especially if you're caught in believing that you're defined by limitations of the past. We can't always trust our thoughts or emotions. I mean, sometimes they're very clear, 
but sometimes they just careen around and they change quite unexpectedly. What I have come to trust is my awareness, my intuition. And believe me, it's a trust that has been honed by lots of mistakes. Times of overriding my intuition, when it told me things I didn't want to hear, and times of ignoring, just ignoring things that I didn't want to know. We have to trust ourselves by trusting this moment. And I guess the main point of all this is to say, please don't be afraid of your own minds. So many people go around being afraid of their own minds. It's okay. Whatever's there, it's okay. Achan Sumedho says, Learning to trust in this awareness is an act of faith, but it's also very much aligned with wisdom. It's something you have to experiment with to get a feeling for, that you have to know for yourself. There's a Zen chant. We say, through the day, Kanzeon. Kanzeon is Kuan Yin, Tara, that embodiment of mercy and tenderness and compassion. Through the day, mercy, goodness and mercy following us. Through the day, Kanzeon. Through the night, Kanzeon. This thought comes from Buddha mind. This thought is one with Buddha mind. Goes on to say, freedom, joy, and purity. Freedom, joy, and purity are not determined by the content of your thoughts, but by your relationship to them by the relationship you make with your own mind and heart. Trust yourself. You are the expert on you. No one else is the expert on you. And finally, use the ingredients at hand, like our cooks. The Buddha's Sangha didn't have cooks. They went out each day to receive their meal offered by villagers near the bamboo grove or wherever they were staying. And they certainly didn't have cooks like ours. So accomplished. They're creative artists, musicians, as if the being master of the culinary arts weren't enough. For these difficult times when our refuge is breakfast, lunch, and dinner, And for sustaining the good health of our bodies, minds, and hearts, we do bow to the cooks and to our managers, Ruby and Susie. What both our managers, Ruby and Susie, and our cooks do is take all of our karma into account. Who doesn't sleep well? Who snores? Who needs extra support? Who's on a gluten-free diet? Who doesn't eat wheat? Who doesn't eat eggs or dairy? Who's vegan? Who is off sugar? Who needs a low-salt diet? Who's allergic to peppers or onions or garlic? And so on, on and on. Somehow, they juggle all these conflicting needs to create the conditions 
the special dishes that will nourish the most delicate systems among us? Can we follow their good example and out of the strengths, talents, and challenges create a contented, a nourishing life? Opening, trusting, relaxing, moving wisely with what is. Again, Sylvia, in one of her bon mots, said, I think it's the title of one of her books, It's Easier Than You Think. Actually, by the now, I think we all know together, it's harder than you could ever imagine. (laughs) (laughs) To stay with what is, to stay in the fire, present and alert, to be patient. But, as my mom says, when I sympathize with her about the rigors of growing old, she'll say, yes, but consider the alternative. (laughs) The alternative is, we have to go through what's happening anyway, because it's happening. So, since it's already here, do we want to go through life with no authentic relationship to what's happening? At the mercy of our emotional reactivity to experience? With no reliable way to wake up from confusion? and make some conscious choices. The idea of having to live through our difficult experiences with no reliable refuge is even scarier than making the effort to be present with experience, pleasant, unpleasant, or neither, and learn from it. So now you are butterflies emerging from the cocoon of retreat. Do you know what actually happens inside a chrysalis? There's a total dissolving and dying of the caterpillar. It literally um, transforms, metamorphs, forms across form to a new being. And all these teachings are fingers pointing at the moon. We get fascinated and hung up on the meaning of the finger and forget to look where it's pointing to the rhythms and transformations of nature, to the moon, ineffable, mysterious, always changing, drawing the tides of ebb and flow, the cycles, shining its particular light, the light of the moment, waxing and waning, once a month fully illuminated, once a month hidden in the great dark, as it rises and sets, rises and sets, like experience. When we're fully here, present with experience, there's no rising or setting, appearing or disappearing. No coming or going. Just what's here, now, in this particular moment of eternity. Trust in Dharma, in nature. When you realize how to know directly through your own being, you realize that everything is empty 
of everything, of all, except our concepts. And this is freeing everything. Then we too are free to celebrate this particular life. Life in the form of you. Life in the form of me. Unique and irreplaceable like a snowflake or a fingerprint. Just this one. One of a kind. Then there's no need to try and shape yourself or beat yourself into shape or so you can fit into someone else's bed. It's a real freedom from that kind of suffering. I'd like to end with a story about my teacher, Maureen's dying. This happened the night before the night she actually died. She was only partly conscious and partly sleeping, kind of in and out of consciousness. And it was quiet in her room, except for night hospital sounds. When she would hear a sound, she would rouse herself and say, thank you. She was saying thank you to experience as each sound woke her up. Then she would just drop off to sleep again. There was no one enlightened. The I, the you, the her cannot become enlightened. It's just, as Gil said, that everything else is freed to be what it is. The clicking of the heavy hospital door. Thank you. The squeak of rubber-soled shoes on the floor. Thank you. A doctor being paged over the loudspeaker. Thank you. The groan of a patient in pain. Thank you, she murmured. Thank you. While she was in the hospital those last three days, we were sitting Sashin retreat. She sent a message to her students, knowing we were sitting as she lay dying. She said, simply, as we might say to you, you know what to do. Please continue your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.